series. Last week, we looked at nearsighted studies in pleasure maximization. Um, you know how uh, the, you know, the author, uh, Kohelet, often says, you know, the best thing to do in life is to eat, drink, and be merry. We looked at that last week. And then this week, again, we're looking at nearsighted studies in risk minimization. That's the kind of contrast between the two. Uh, and then after I talk about that for a little while, we'll kind of zoom back and have a look at Ecclesiastes as a whole. And then at the end of the thing, uh, I'll ask if it, there's any questions that anybody wants to throw at me. Um, and then that'll be the end of the matter. That's the plan anyway. So have it, I pray. And then we'll get stuck into nearsighted studies into risk minimization. Father in heaven, we give you thanks for your good word and we pray that we might be able to listen to it and obey it and fear you appropriately. Amen. Um, last year in 2020, there was uh, an internet sensation when this bloke who lived in Chicago started a YouTube channel called Dad How Do I? Um, I don't know if you guys have come across this one. Uh, it was uh, a guy who grew up and when he was 12 years old, his father left and him and his mum had to figure out how to do life together. And it was hard. Uh, and so now as a dad himself, he's created this YouTube channel where he creates little videos about how to, how to fix household things that might happen in normal life. Um, and so his most watched video by far is uh, the how to fix most leaking toilets. Um, and, and there's this really warm, genuine kind of uh, way that he's presented it. Um, he, he launched the channel in 2020. After two months of it going live, he had 185 million subscribers. <laughs> Isn't that interesting? Like, I, th I think like it got tweeted by somebody else who was quite famous. I had no idea who they were. Um, and, and she said about this guy, check out this Chicago-based guy who's posting videos like this. And her comment was, isn't this the purest thing? And so it went viral. And I think that's telling about our... Our, our culture, isn't it, that still today we have uh, you know, a generation of kids who want an invested dad to be able to care for them and, and you know, just look after them. That, that's the purest thing that we could imagine. Anyway, we'll come back to that thought a little bit later on in the sermon. Um, but today, as we look at nearsighted studies in risk minimisation, Kohelet, this fictional character who has been created by the father... He's basing all of his philosophy upon the one main premise in life, and that is simply that life is chaotic. Because life is chaotic, ultimately everything is meaningless. And so as we learned last week, the best thing that you can do is to take swiping grabs at carnal pleasures. And additionally, because life is chaotic, the best thing that you can do in life is to make sure that the chaos doesn't reign and you've got to manage your risk appropriately. And so this morning we're going to look at his main risk management passages as we go through Ecclesiastes and have a look at a few of those. There's five of them that I'm going to take us through. So if you've got a Bible there, um, open up with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 4, uh, verses 9 to 12. This is his first risk management passage. He says in chapter 4, verses 9 to 12, uh, where's nine start for my one? Yeah, there we go. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their work. If one falls down, his friend can help him up. But pity the man who falls and has no one to help him. Also, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. And a cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Good advice? 
It's pretty good advice, isn't it? Like, as far as this one goes, I, I don't have too many gripes against it. Obviously, his view, again, is a little bit more financial than I would suggest is positive for having healthy relationships with the people around you. Like, you know, he says, a friend is good to have around because of the great warm companionship that you can have with them that'll last for eternity. Now, a friend is good because they can help you to get more gain. Um, it's, yeah, a little bit colder than what you might hope from a, a well-rounded view of family and relationships. But that's his first one. Um, let's go into Ecclesiastes chapter 11, verses 1 to 6. Here's some more risk minimization practices. He says, Cast your bread upon the waters, for after many days you will find it again. Give portions to seven, yes to eight, for you do not know what disaster may come upon the land. If clouds are full of water, they pour rain upon the earth. And whether a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where it falls, there will it lie. Whoever watches the wind will not plant. Whoever looks at the clouds will not reap. And as you do not know the path of the wind or how the body is formed in a mother's womb, so you cannot understand the work of God, the maker of all things. So your seed in the morning and at evening, let not your hands be idle, for you do not know which will succeed, whether this or that, or whether both will do equally, equally well. What do you think of that advice? That's pretty reasonable, isn't it? Um, it's, he's saying, in your investment portfolio, make sure you have diversification. I, I think that's, that's kind of his push here. Like, you know, you don't know if Bitcoin will succeed, so you better buy some. That, that's kind of his suggestion for life. And additionally, can you see the way that he views God in the midst of this? Uh, God is, is mentioned uh, as you cannot understand the worker of God, the maker of all things. Now, is he here saying God is divine and sovereign and Lord of all, and so we must be humble beneath him? Or is he saying actually something else, that perhaps God is just another cog in the chaotic world that we live in? Who knows? Let's keep going to uh, chapter 5. Back, so turn in Ecclesiastes, chapter 5, verse 1. He's applied his risk management practices to farming and to wealth and to friendships and to family. And now he's going to apply his risk management practices to God and the spiritual realm. And in chapter 5, verse 1, he says, Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Go near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know that they do wrong. Isn't that interesting? That he describes people who offer sacrifice as fools. Um, that maybe uh, Kohelet was just reading uh, Isaiah chapter 1, verse 11, where it describes uh, this idea of giving uh, too many meaningless uh, sacrifices as a useless thing. In chapter 1, verse 11, um, of Isaiah, it says, The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me? Says the Lord. I have more than enough burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and the lambs and goats. Maybe he was reading that and he thinks, well, God, God's anger can flare up, so you better not go too close to him. He, he's a raging fire, and so let's, let's practice good risk management and keep a distance from him. Um, in uh, in chapter, oh yeah, chapter, again, chapter 5, verses 2 and 3, do not be quick with your mouth, do not be hasty in your heart to utter anything before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. Can you see the distance that there is between Kohelet and God? He, he's like this unknown force. And then he keeps going in chapter, uh, chapter 5, verse 4, when you make a vow to God, do not delay in fulfilling it. This sounds biblical. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. 
It is better not to vow than to make a vow and not fulfil it. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin. And do not protest to the temple messenger, my vow was a mistake. At this point, everything that he said in this verse is pretty much matching what Moses says in Deuteronomy chapter 23. When you make a vow, you must fulfill that vow because this is the promise that you've made to God. Otherwise, you'll be guilty of sin and that sin will need to be atoned for. But then check out the motivation that Kohelet has for the reason why he wants to fulfill his vow. He says, why should God be angry at what you say and destroy the work of your hands? He's starting to see the the way that he manages his risk here and manages God. God is this unknown force that might get angry with you if you do the wrong thing. Um, The final passage that we'll look at for his divine risk management strategies is perhaps the most interesting out of all of them. This one's in chapter 7, if you want to flick over to there. And it is in verses 15 and 18. And it's just fascinating. He says, In this meaningless life of mine, I have seen both of these. A righteous man perishing in his righteousness and a wicked man living long in his wickedness. Do not be over-righteous, neither be over-wise. Why destroy yourself? Do not be over-wicked and do not be a fool. Why die before your time? Isn't that crazy? To, to think that you know you would you would suggest um, that it's good to be not over righteous. Um, you know the story of Job. Here's a guy who was over righteous, and because of his he was too invested in God, uh, he brought too much attention to himself, and then he lost everything. And so Kohelet is saying, "Don't be a fool like Job, who is too righteous." But it's okay, just be a little bit righteous because that way you'll probably get it right with God. And then likewise, don't be overly wicked. But if you're on a hunting trip away with the boys, you can be a little bit wicked. And you just got to manage your risk and, and play it safe in, in the middle, middle ground. Can you see how everything's good in moderation is his idea. Because life is chaotic, take passing grabs at carnal pleasures. And because life is chaotic, manage your risks and be safe in those. But the, the craziest bit by far is when he gets to chapter 7, verse, 19, or verse 18. It is good to grasp the one and not let go of the other. The man who fears God will avoid all extremes. And this is a fascinating moment because obviously the whole of the book ends with this statement of fear God and obey his commands. And yet here halfway through, Kohelet is, in, is concluding, so the best thing that you can do is fear God. And the way that we express fearing God is by avoiding all extremes, living a moderate life. And we've got to think, no, like that, that's ridiculous. This is a moment in Ecclesiastes where the irony is so dumb that we should be enraged. This is like, it reminds me of when um, I, I used to work for YouthWorks running Christian camps a, a few years back, and we would have email correspondence with a bunch of schools and every now and again we'd have a school that was a grammar school from somewhere and you know how to spell grammar how many a's are in grammar there's two two a's the second a is an a it is not an e and every now and again you'd get a teacher from so-and-so grammar school that would be emailing you and they would describe their school as g-r-a-m-m-e-r the irony! You, this is your, you, you're trying to teach good English stuff. <laughs> I, I think there's a similar moment going on here where 
we're meant to see the dumb irony of it. That the conclusion of the matter, yes, it is to fear God, but fearing God isn't in living a moderate life. That's ridiculous. Fearing God, I think the way that the Old Testament presents the fear of the Lord is best captured in Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. This is a real famous one. It's a lovely one. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Can you see the total commitment? There's no moderation in that, is there? Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. Kohelet's whole you know, quest in life was to use his understanding and his heart to guide him to a place of thoughtful, purposeful living. And yet it ended up in meaninglessness. And so, in all your ways acknowledge him and he will make your paths straight. Fear the Lord and shun evil, and this will bring health to your body and nourishment to your bones. Um, It reminds me of that classic old youth group illustration. I remember seeing it when I was in youth group as a pup. And um, you'd bring out a big jar and you'd have a bunch of different sized stones there. And uh, the only way that you could fit all of the stones into the jar was if you get the biggest stone and you put the big stone in there first, and then all of the other little stones can then fit in after it. Have you guys seen that one or get that kind of concept? Um, and, and the correlation, of course, is that if you put the wrong things in your life first, if you put the little things in your life, then it'll fill up and then you won't be able to put the big stone in there. And so obviously the big stone is God, and so if you don't put God in your jar first, then life won't work and it will be utter meaningless. Um, See. So, For Kohelet, he concludes that the best thing you can do is fear God by living a life of moderation. And so for him, the biggest stone that he puts in is the fact that life is chaotic and that risk must be managed. And so therefore, you've got to live this moderate life. But the irony is that he's just got the fear of God all wrong. If If we truly want to live life as wise people under God, then then we must first place him in there and trust in the Lord with all of our heart, a total radical devotion to him that that even might um, end up with some crazy thing like what happened to Job, but that's okay because in the end he's got us covered. See, uh, Ecclesiastes tells this beautiful story of a loving father who cares so much about his son that he wants to present this character who embodies a fusion of popular wisdom and biblical faith so that the son might be able to discern that and figure it out and at the end he might be able to decide you know what I choose to live a life under God of thoughtful living and that's the the guts of it the end of the matter is that we should fear God Um, as we kind of capture that idea and then step back and think about the last three weeks and where we've been I wonder How do you feel after you've met Kohelet and particularly uh, explored Ecclesiastes in this way? Um, I don't know about you, but for me, it's been a bit of a redemption of Ecclesiastes. um, I'd always felt confused by it and and how do we take it? I didn't even realise that there's two main speakers in Ecclesiastes. I just thought it was the one guy saying the whole thing and it was just weird. It was kind of like... Ecclesiastes was, was, had an author who could equally fit in in the back streets of a, a darkly lit Paris you know, alleyway, smoking a long cigarette and, and chatting uh, about the miseries of life you know, for, for one afternoon. And then the next afternoon, he writes a book of the Bible. Like, it was just a confusing guy. But 
For me to realise that Ecclesiastes is written by a loving father who has crafted a fable that the son might be able to discern the best way to live under God, for me that's been a redemption of Ecclesiastes. And, and the other factor for me is that it's also been a redemption of critical thinking as well. Because in this sense, the son, his own, uh, his own critical thinking skills are given honour, aren't they? Because the son is invited to make a decision. Whom, whom do you want to follow, boy? Do you want to follow Kohelet? Or do you want to live life under God? But you have to decide. And I think this has been a redemption for me, particularly because of the Christian culture that I grew up in. I don't know if you connect with this as well, but obviously a couple of weeks ago I mentioned that I grew up in a Christian culture that could have been described as a tribal thinking. We, we thought the things that we were told to think to an extent, right? Um, and there wasn't an, an awesome uh, amount of freedom to, to explore. Uh, and so I think as we read Ecclesiastes and discover that the young man is encouraged to use his thinking brain to figure out how to best live under God, then there's a redemption of, of active thinking. Um, there, and the way that, I don't know if you feel this, but I certainly have felt this over time, that the, the Christian cultures that I've grown up in have had a certain passive stance in the way that we've received the word of God. Um, even to the point where phrases like, I'm going to go to church to be fed, have, have been a normal thing to say. Or I'm going to go to church to sit under some teaching. Um, like if you were to compare that kind of passive stance to the way that King David, who was a hero of engaging with the word of God, engaged with the Bible, you know, he was a guy who meditated upon his laws day and night. It was a real active stance that, you know, babies get fed. Um, if you're sitting under something, it's often a shower. Uh, but, but I think Ecclesiastes invites us into an active stance when we meet the word of God. And, and we're not just to, to come to church to be passively fed by a giant spoon that looks like an aeroplane. Um, that's, that's not for us to do. It's for us to engage with the word of God and to meditate upon it. I don't know if you connect with that, but that's, that's part of my journey that, that helps me um, as I read Ecclesiastes. The other, the other way that I've been struck as I've been thinking about Ecclesiastes as well is that the Bible doesn't have too much long sections on parenting. Um, there's a few snippets and verses here and there, um, but perhaps Ecclesiastes is the longest extended discussion on how to raise a teenager. Have you thought about that? I, 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 like, it's certainly not a book on how to raise a teenager. It's a book on how to fear God and live with integrity. But nonetheless, it invites us to think about how can we thoughtfully be parents similar to this. Um, if you'll allow me a little bit of creative license here, um, last week I introduced you to the guy named Benny, um, who is the, you know, the, the son that this might be written to. But as well as Benny, we have another character in the text as well, and he, he's the father who's authored this. And, and as I was thinking about the father, let's call him Jacob, um, as I was thinking about Jacob, what kind of guy is Jacob that he decides to write a 12-chapter-long fable for his son who's about to leave the family home? Like, he's obviously a philosopher, isn't he? He's a thinking guy. He's an observer, similar to Kohelet, but differently to Kohelet. He's a God-fearer. Um, and I imagine that he was a guy that was also laughed at. 
Like, um, you know, allow me to explore this a little bit, but imagine that, you know, the guys are sitting at the village square and they say, oh, look, here comes Jacob. He's coming along. Man, Jacob, doesn't he? He just has the best land for barley. And like his, his place, his farm, is right next to that road where the Egyptians go on. And if he was, if he was just to invest in barley or, or another wheat, like something, then he'd be able to make an absolute killing. But year after year, he just does sheep. Like why, why does he just do the same thing over and over again? It just seems like there's ambition there that's just lost. Well, man, Jacob's a fool. Like, and we know that Jacob's got cash, right? Because every week he turns up to the temple early and he sits at the front and we see those coins that he drops in there, man. They're, they're heavy. And so he's got the cash to splash, but he just, he just does sheep. And he, man, he wears those same daggy sandals every single week. Like, can you see how Jacob perhaps was the guy that was, was laughed at for the way that he had a total devotion to God that wasn't popular and that he didn't invest in the way that the other guys did. And then as a father as well, what kind of father decides, you know what, I'm going to write a fable for my son and it's going to be 12 chapters, like it's going to be big and I'm going to create this character named Kohelet and he's, he's going to explore all the different worlds and then could you imagine the first time that he wrote it when Benny was only 13 years old and he's you know, staying up late at night to write this fable for his son and the final chapter, you know, chapter 12 here that we've got, um, this is the end of the matter, fear God and keep his commandments for this is the whole duty of the man. The first time he wrote that chapter, it was 25 chapters long, wasn't it? And he kept on saying, I've got so much to tell my son and, and how to live. And then, and then as, as he grew up, he realised that no, my son is becoming a man and I need to honour his dignity. I need to be radically clear about what he needs to know, but I want to make sure that this is tight and dense and that the conclusion of Kohelet is tight and dense as well because his conclusion again and again is meaningless, meaningless, a vapour, mist, nothingness. And yet the conclusion of everything else is for the son to fear God and keep his commands, for this is the whole duty of the man. Um, I don't know about you, but as I reflect upon Jacob the father, I just can't help but to feel that isn't this the purest thing? This, isn't, this is so much better than creating a video on how to fix a stupid toilet. This is a, a father who models biblical fatherhood by showing that he is invested and he cares purposefully about his son and he is sensitive to his son's needs, knowing that he is a man who is going to need to use his own thinking capacities. And so he honours the dignity of that man by inviting him in to assess the story and to figure it out for himself. See, the main character of Ecclesiastes is Kohelet. And Ecclesiastes uh, and Kohelet balances on the edge of the knife, doesn't he? If you make Kohelet too cool then Benny might think, you know what, I want to follow this guy. He's, he sounds rad. I want to go on a hunting trip with this guy. But then if you make Kohelet too, too like plain, straight and boring, then he's, he's plain, straight and boring and he's not attractive. And so he honours the dignity of his young son by inviting him to make the decision himself. Whom are you going to follow, Benny, my boy? Are you going to follow Kohelet? Or are you going to be a man of integrity and follow after the Lord, trusting in him and with your whole heart, total, radical commitment. Um, yeah, for me, this is it's just the purest thing as I reflect upon it. I, th- I think it gives... Cer- certainly Ecclesiastes is not, is not a how-to parenting book for teenagers, but it can give us some insight on how to be thoughtful and invested and purposeful 
and sensitive to our children. And I think that's a, a wonderful thing to work with. Well, um, the, the final thing, a uh, couple of things before I uh, reflect upon, uh, uh, invite questions. Um, the, the trajectory of fearing the Lord in the Old Testament wasn't the same as in the New Testament. Um, I'm sorry, I flipped too early. But when we, when we read out before uh, Proverbs chapter 3, verse uh, you know, 5, 6, 7 and 8, trust in the Lord with all your heart um, the con- and fear God and shun evil, uh, the, uh, the fruit of that is that this will bring health to your body and nourishment to your bones. In the Old Testament, uh, there was good to be had in living a wise and prosperous life and their view of eternity had nowhere near the fullness that we have as New Testament Christians. And so for us, as we live the life of total commitment to God, where we trust in him with all our heart, this is why we had um, 1 Peter chapter 3 read out to us before, because if we trust in God with all our heart, then in his great mercy he has given us a new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, into an inheritance that's not meaningless, it can never perish, spoil or fade, and it's kept in heaven for you. And so for us, as we live the wise life of total devotion to God, we can know that our trajectory isn't just nourishment and health for our bones, but it's into an inheritance that will never perish, spoil or fade. And I think that's really, again, that's the purest thing, isn't it? Um, I'm, I'm going to pause there and invite any questions or anything, and then I'll, um, I'll wrap it up in, in a minute after that. So, um, in light of the three weeks on Ecclesiastes, um, you got anything? Yeah, Rachel, you're in there. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's really short compared to the middle of Job. Um, you know, <laughs> look at that. Uh, yeah, certainly. Um, uh, if you read Proverbs, you know how there's um, lady, lady folly and lady wisdom, and it, there's there's a kind of um, there's a precedent that you can personify a wise person and personify a, a foolish person, and that was just a, a done thing. That was how they wrote literature back then. Um, and so I think the, the father, Jacob, just got carried away, maybe. Um, and, like, it's a helpful exploration. You know, he goes through all of the different at, um, facets of, of popular wisdom. Um, but, yeah, certainly the, the negative example of Kohelet is significantly longer than the, than the final little bit, isn't it? Um, uh, but I think that's, that's kind of Hebrew style. Um, read Job, and then it's snappy. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Jewish and Christian history um, uh, have taken Solomon to be the author of it. Um, and I think uh, that, that's reasonable in some ways, but it's just not, not coherent, finally. Um, and so that, that's what we know about it, but uh, the, uh, I, I, I don't know. Um, well, I, I sure. think it might make sense that back in those times, with Greek and Roman thought, that a philosophical mind would be better. 
Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, th- I think that would be helpful. And, and certainly, um, I don't know if this is helpful, but some of the thought that um, uh, the author is critiquing in here, it has some really Greek themes into it. And so Ecclesiastes is likely one of the last books of the Old Testament that was written. Um, if it's critiquing Greek thought, the Greeks had to be around, um, and so it had to be perhaps written 200 years before Christ. Um, so that, that's, but, but these are unknown. We're just speculating at that point. But, yeah, thank you. Um, cool, well, oh, yeah, yeah same. So, um, I was just thinking about what you said before. Um, when you write papers nowadays, for schoolwork, for uni, whatever, um, you write it with, you explore all these other aspects first, and then at the end, you come to the conclusion as to uh, how things should be, you know. Um, mm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's certainly got some modern themes that that come up to it as well. Um, but yeah, and, and and as I mentioned a couple of weeks ago, I think it's timeless. This idea of um, uh, popular thought is always going to be fused with Christian ideas, and it's always going to be our job to dissect the two and live Christianly rather than live popularly. Um, yeah. Thank you. Romans 12, um, chapter 2, says, Do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. I think that's a really helpful New Testament way to apply Ecclesiastes into now. But now all has been heard, and here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commands, for this is the whole duty of a man. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. Amen.